0: Okay, today we're going to be talking about the false relation, a harmonic phenomenon of the Renaissance, and relate that to Thomas Tallis and his life and a little bit to our life today. Then we're going to have a great interview with British composer Cecilia McDowell. This is Early Music Monday. So, if I were to mention the name Thomas Tallis, the musicians in the audience know exactly who I'm talking about. The people who are perhaps unfamiliar with Renaissance choral music may have no idea who that is. And his life is really interesting. So, if we take a trip back in history, think back like forever ago to a crazy time when popular beliefs of the day seemed to change with every regime change anytime there was a new person in charge there's a new mob of philosophies and you're kind of afraid to speak out about you know, what you believe, and, you know, people are, there's violence happening, and there's a plague, that uh, epidemic, I mean, that sounds like, I can't even fathom what that would feel like, because it's just too, it's just too far, far, like, a long time ago in history. Far ago, is that a thing? That's not a thing. It's too long ago in history to even wrap your head around what that would be like. I mean, that was last week. I can't remember last week. I can't even remember the last five minutes with our news cycle. That's kind of what it feels like sometimes. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that was the time that Talus lived in, too. So he was born um, in about 1505, but we don't really know. There's like no records of his early life. But he composed, he composed music in England during four regime changes, Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary the uh, Queen Mary I and Elizabeth I. And with each of those regime changes, there was a new religious zeal swinging back and forth kind of on a pendulum. So and that had some serious consequences with it. And a lot of his contemporaries Many of his contemporaries gave up composing because it was too hard. They had to change style every time. They had to change the way they did things, their approach. And they had to profess different beliefs, and they just just didn't do it. But he had grit. He had some real grit. Um, If you remember a couple episodes ago when we talked about grit. So people were literally in danger of being executed if they believed the wrong thing or said the wrong thing. And so th- that's kind of like taking the the social media mob justice cancel culture of just like insanity that we have today of you really can't say anything without a certain group of people threatening to cancel you and destroy your livelihood. But then, instead of threatening to kick you off the internet, they threaten to kill you, burn you at the stake. Which, you know, I'm not really sure which one people think is worse. Here you go. Live the rest of your life without technology or die right now. I think some people would choose to die. Like Ryan from the office, I I can't I can't not be with my phone. You know. Anyway, so Talus had this sort of keep your head down and be pragmatic approach, <clears throat> and that would have been really hard because again, something that you hold so per- personal and it's a part of who you are is now all of a sudden a new person comes into power and says uh... Nope, that's false. And then a couple of years later, we're really, like, actually, that is the ultimate truth. And then, oh, nope, that's false again. Yeah, it'd be tough. So he wrote a lot and he composed a lot and he put a lot of his personal beliefs into his music. Whether that's intentional or not is really powerful. So it's really interesting, though, because his protege, William Byrd, who was much younger, he was super outspoken and remained a staunch Catholic and took pride in it. And he was, he escaped, narrowly escaped death and he was fined several times. They found when it was the Protestants who were, when the Protestant faith was the, the belief of the day, the mandated belief of the day, you know, they found music scores under his floorboards that were Catholic that was Catholic in Latin and all that stuff, so anyway, but Talus was again the opposite, and he kept quiet and and you know was very, very practical and i I think it's really interesting in today's world, we may seem to scoff at you know, oh, how medieval of them they <laughs> they argued to the point of killing each other over religion like. How uh, primitive and barbaric. Uh, Yeah, we are literally the same. Because behind those religious beliefs was political strife. And how many people have religious zeal towards their political views now? And think, you know, and some people believe that their religious views are mirrored in their political belief. And so people get pretty militant. And so we're no different. Kind of like what what Philip Lasser said about how music hasn't changed since the Renaissance. I don't think people have changed that much either. You know, we may have gained some new technologies. We may have gained some new ideas. But for the most part, we're still the same. Still struggle with the same things of, hey, how are we going to learn how to be nice to each other? So, he had four—we're going to get to the false relation, I promise. But before then, I want to explain. There's four—what I mentioned before, four stylistic periods. The Henry VIII stylistic—if if I, if I were to kind of break them down by monarch, be the Henry VIII style, Edward VI, Queen Mary, and Elizabeth. So, during King Henry VIII's reign— he he seemed to have this sort of um, dense like confidence in his writing. It was really ornate, really elaborate. The music was in Latin, long melismatic phrases, really thick textures, real masterpieces. Think of the Sistine Chapel, think of the David in, in terms of visual art and sculpture it's the same kind of thing where every piece is just so intricate and immaculate and that was kind of the view of catholic music was we wanted it to be ornate we wanted to celebrate the glory of god we wanted it to be you know transcendental or whatever that word is and the text in my mind the text kind of became subservient to the music Then, you know, as Protestants gained power and Edward VI took over, we're going to talk about Edward VI in our next episode as well, actually, then it was probably the peak of religious Protestant zeal, and there was a lot of uh, killing at the stake type things under Edward, and... They took a hatchet to music and just cut it at the knees in terms of its expressivity and all that. So it was supposed to be in English. The text was king, so the music became subservient to the text. It had to be heard. It had to be understood. Simple, thinner textures. You listen to a piece like If Ye Love Me or A New Commandment And you can see it's for four parts. There's this space, this gaping space between each part. And I'm not talking about like, oh, the alto part is really like an octave and a fifth away from the soprano. But because of the rhythmic simplicity and the textual simplicity, there's this distance in terms of time and space seemingly between each part that creates this kind of solitude and simplicity it's really beautiful but but again it was he he had to come at music differently you're writing this really thick amazingly intricate borderline borderline self-indulgent almost contrapuntal masterpiece and then you have to go to writing something simple And you're kind of exploring new things. For a true musician like Talos, I'm sure that would have been a fun challenge. But it also could have been extremely frustrating. Then, all of a sudden, Edward dies at 15. Then Mary takes over. And she restores Catholicism. Bringing back the motherland. And... All of the Catholic rights are instantly reinstated. So it's like executive orders, and then the next president, oh, sorry, did I say president? I meant monarch comes in and says, oh, we're going to undo all those with new executive orders. And then the next president comes in and says, oh, wh- I mean, sorry, I keep saying president. Why do I keep saying that? That's so weird. Monarch comes in and says, oh, we're going to undo that. Oh, we're going to undo that. It's really interesting. And so he gets to kind of bring back a little bit of his old school style, his OG techniques, but Queen Mary was married to a European monarch, and so, and his name escapes me now, I'm sure people listening are like, oh my gosh, you're an idiot, looking it up, looking it up right now, Queen Mary won, ah, Prince Philip of Spain duh okay so she was married to Prince Philip of Spain now the interesting thing about this is that Talus then incorporates some continental European techniques so there's some key differences going all the way back to the medieval period between the continent and England England's kind of always doing their own thing in terms of their well in a lot of ways but in in musical style There wasn't this concept of kind of this overarching soaring soprano that's above the texture of everything else. It's kind of all much in a in a much more similar range. It's a little bit lower, more grounded. And so Talus takes some of his old ornamental, extravagant, lush, decorated, decorative, intricate. Catholic, melismatic, expressive, can I think of more words, style, but then incorporates this European, like continental European influence in with that. It's really quite amazing how he does that. There's some really great stuff uh, from that time period. So you can see his grit as he's kind of working through and making adjustments and keeping his head down and really wise... He was really well beloved because of that kind of thing. So then, ultimately, the final time period of his writing is the Elizabethan period, of Queen Elizabeth I, and it's a return to, da Protestantism. Who could have guessed? So, but, but they kind of, he was sort of a really well-liked composer, so... They didn't really have quite as much zeal towards capturing him or finding him or catching him in this thing. He still definitely had to reform and change, but it wasn't like he was living in fear of death every day. Like maybe perhaps it was under Edward's reign. But still, talk about a roller coaster. Here, you have to write this kind of music. Oh, now you have to reject all of that, and you have to write this kind of music. Oh, nope that's false. Go back to the way you're writing before. Oh, wait, no, 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 no. Do the second way again. That's insane. And it's frustrating for me reading, of let alone being in it, where it's like, let me just, can I just compose what I want, please? Thank you for the love of Queen Mary and Elizabeth and Henry and Edward. It would, It makes me think, once again, of The Office when Michael's trying to get Stanley to participate. And he's just, nope, not doing it. Leave me alone. No. And Michael's like, come on. And then he's like, did I stutter? And then everyone freezes and it's awkward. And then Michael, like, pretends to ignore it. And then they get in this fight. And that was what would be – that would be me. I would be like William Byrd and be like, there is one finger – named after myself, that I have for you. But Talos was way wiser and grittier than that. So the interesting thing about this time period is that he was, he he had built a reputation for himself to where he was well-beloved, like I mentioned earlier. And so he was sort of free from the daily, moment-by-moment terror of being killed for believing a different way. They kind of maybe, like, turned an eye, like, turned a blind eye at some of his personal beliefs as long as he wrote music for the Protestant faith and rights and all those things. So it's really interesting to hear... Um, there's an interview I listened to a while ago with Peter Phillips, the conductor of uh, the Tallis Scholars, and he's talking to Scottish composer Scottish composer James MacMillan. He's talking about how in Talus's Lamentations of Jeremiah, his settings of those texts, you hear this deep undertone of longing and real emotional, yearning, there's deep emotion in these pieces of music that is at a new level from anything he's written before. And especially when it it says the text at the end, you know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, turn, return to the Lord your God. And how symbolic that might have been for him sort of pleading with the church and, and really maybe the cosmos at large of Why can't we return to, you know, his deep-seated belief in Catholicism? So I think that's really amazing. And when you listen to his music, you can hear there's this beauty of this deep human emotion that he taps into while also touching this deep divine sense of holiness simultaneously. I think that's really hard. There's some really emotionally great music out there that's not really uh, this sense of timelessness or holiness. And then there's other music that sounds really holy, like I'd consider Palestrina sounding holy or Dufy or Chant, but it's not that emotive. It's almost like this exclusively otherworldly holiness Kind of absence of human feeling. And again, then the other would be the opposite, this pendulum. And Talus seems, just like in his musical style, to connect both of those things. And it really creates this cool dichotomy that is unique and why his music has lasted for so long in popularity and being performed all around the world all the time. So, The false relation, how does this relate to the false relations? In his Catholic music, he has more of this kind of phenomenon. So it's a harmonic phenomenon. For those of you who are not choral nerds, there's this point where you have one voice part, let's say the tenors, because why not? their egos need a little padding so let's talk about them the tenors have this line they go up and they hit a note that's let's say it's a let's say it's an E flat an E flat and or they start on an F and then they descend F, E flat, D whatever then let's say we have the altos who are singing an F and they're about to sing F, E natural, F, G and they're about to go up Well, as lines go up, the notes kind of want to be sharper or higher in pitch, so you would use an E natural. If you're descending, that line is descending down towards the earth, you'd use a flat note to help lead you there, so the melody works really well, thus giving you a flat note and a natural note at the same time, or usually like either simultaneously, or one right after the other. It's gnarly. It's awesome. We've talked about this before. But think of how interesting it is that in Talos's music, there's so many instances of this false relation. When he's coming to cadences, when he's expressing very specific lines of text that are particularly painful, so he has these two competing ideas, Catholicism, Protestantism. He has these two different melodic ideas, the, the for lack of a better word and not wanting to go too deep into it. The major version of the scale, I can't even almost say that without thinking of all the nuance that need to go into that. But for the sake of simplicity, the, the major version of that scale and the minor version of that scale happening simultaneously you know you have to those two worlds touch and 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 even then in his writing of the human emotion and the divine emotion coming together i think that the false relation in music represents can represent a lot more than just musical concepts and even like expressing the text in the given moment i think it can go way deeper than that into you know personal struggles we all have of two different conflicting things at once and how you can make those work together there's this moment of discomfort and then it resolves this give and take tension and release it's this balancing act and sometimes we have to confront those difficult moments in pa- uh, of pain and then and, and, and we feel it release. And that's what gives life its beauty. And, you know, we can face it like Talos. He was patient. He was tough. He was wise. He had grit and he knew how to navigate murky waters. And I think that as musicians, that's kind of what we have to do with all the different philosophies and, and beliefs and trends and things that go on, uh, I think that to kind of focus on the music itself, the music itself that touches the human feeling and the divine feeling, whatever your religious beliefs are, there's something otherworldly about this music and something that's very human at the same time. Uh, It's just so good. It's so good. That being said, I'm going to show you a short clip of Sound of Ages singing a piece by Thomas Tallis, and it is called Audivi Vocem De Cello. I heard a voice from heaven, out of heaven. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it was in Latin, so you'd think, oh, it was in the Catholic period, so either Henry VIII or Mary actually since in 1575, so this was in the Elizabethan period, but again, they kind of turned a blind eye, and so he kind of is conglomerating all of his style at this point, so it's it's Latin, there's these beautiful long phrases, but it's thinner in texture, and it's evenly just in four parts with chant in between. So I'm going to play for you uh, Audivi Vocem De Cello by Thomas Tallis, performed by Sound of Ages. And let all the other podcasts and political commentary and craziness of the world just kind of wash away and just bask in the divine sense of holiness in this music, whatever your belief's, And the human emotion that's just so expressive... So in today's world, a composer that I would compare to Talus in a lot of ways, actually, and, but in one specific way of there's a lot of that false relation dissonance that is used by this particular composer and this sense of holiness mixed with this great sense of human emotion. Perfectly balanced in awesomeness is the music of British composer Cecilia McDowell. So we now turn to our interview with her, and I'll let her introduce herself and tell her story and how she got to be a composer of such great reputation. Here's Cecilia McDowell. Thank you, Cecilia and Val, for coming on the podcast. It's a great privilege. I've been a huge fan of your music, Cecilia, for the first piece I ever heard was "O Oriens," And I actually, it was when I was in BYU Singers, and we performed it. And I was like, who is this lady? This is amazing. Um, and uh, it was incredible. And then I got to meet you at... Uh, National ACDA in Minnesota briefly at your booth and I've been a huge fan ever since. So this is a really big honor. Nice. <laughs> so I'd love to hear to start your story of how you got into composing and and into music and, and kind of the path of when you started till where you're at now.
1: Right. Um, I, I suppose one of the things is that My background, my family background was musical, my father was a professional flautist and principal flute at the Royal Opera House. Oh, wow. Um, And he was also solo flautist with many of the main orchestras in this country. So we were always used to music in the air. Yeah. And he worked with a lot of musicians who came to the house and and played. Um, So that kind of background is you you think is quite helpful but i do remember at one stage my father saying whatever you do don't go into music
0: (laughs) as a as a loving father right (laughs) um
1: but uh then i mean i I went to university i I then went on to music conservatoire and um have always composed in a in a way but but not with any great seriousness and really, after teaching for many years at um, in the Trinity College of Music in London, um, Yehudi Menuhin School, Specialist Music School in this country, um, and I had a family, and of course, that distracted me. And then <laughs> it was uh, in my late 40s. Nice. I, thought, I don't get on with it now, the moment will pass. So, so I, I came to it late and um, And of course, what I did realize is that when you do come to something at a different stage, uh, the the options and the possibilities have all changed. And instead of being able to um, uh, access the technical skill and the contacts of one's peers, they're not there because of course, I I had lost contact with a lot of my my peers from university and conservatoire days. So it it was really starting right from scratch again. Um, But then I feel I was very lucky in that there were a number of people I met along the way who were very helpful and very encouraging and very supportive. And it it feels in a way as though one thing led to another. Um, And um, then when Oxford University Press put me on as a house composer, that was, Great, and also at the same time, I was lucky enough to find my agent, Val Whitman, <laughs> who been and, um all these things coming together. Just, just help. Um, yeah. So that's, that's really where I am now.
0: That's fantastic. Do you? So you kind of touched on maybe one of the disadvantages of coming to it late, um, but do you feel like there's what advantages do you feel like? You had, or what benefits do you feel like were had because you came at it maybe a little bit later? Are there any, or or what were those, if there were?
1: Well, I, I suppose one of one of the advantages might be that I listened much more. I mean, I, mm. I uh, when I think back to what I was listening to uh, and what I was involved with um, back then as a student, um, of course. Wasn't the same as it is now. So I, I think that uh, there's a lot to be picked up and learned along the way. I mean, at, um, at at one stage when my children were small, my husband was really very kind about looking after the children. I just went to concert after concert. Yeah. hearing all the premieres that I could hear um, just was that was invaluable.
0: Yeah, and, that's amazing
1: all of this feeds in doesn't
0: it into one's thinking yeah Yeah. absolutely and shapes shapes your sound and shapes uh, you know kind of your um lens i guess in through through which you kind of see things and the more you can take in the more diverse your lens is so i think that's awesome in in tandem to listening a lot that you just mentioned and listening to a lot of premieres when you're studying then the score visually and maybe audibly at the same time as you play through it or listen and follow, what are some things that jump off the score to you that kind of catch your attention? What are exciting moments for you during your score study? Well oh, um, I'm not sure
1: how best to answer that one, but I, I think, you know, when you're reading a score and you're listening to the music, I don't find it's what leaps off the score. I, I think it's what I hear and mm. the auditory uh, impact that has. I mean, say, for instance, um, without a score, just listening to The Rite of Spring, the very first time I heard that, that one of the most exciting things ever. And then I went to look at a score to see, yeah. um, see what it like and um and and then i think that's that's always useful i think uh, when it comes to orchestrating finding how um how a symphonist or how how any composer hides what colors they're going to use. i mean going back against basically uh, listening to colors he has or even benjamin Britten. how does benjamin Britten get that effect of the High skyline that you get at the scene, and you hear a violin and a flute and a piccolo, and you you get terrific um, feeling of of space there. Yeah. So I suppose actually it's through the ear first of all, hmm. um, but I like to look at the score and how it's been achieved.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's uh, that's something I've had conversations with other interviewees with about kind of in in america our academic approach to music theory sometimes gets in the trap of identification first and then sound second we've talked a lot about no maybe we should really understand the sound first and then figure out why it's called what it's called because it'll make way more sense so that that backs up that point really well that it's the sound first and then and then you go and you you figure out how to make yeah. that come together
1: yeah, it was interesting for for um for several years, I taught in junior department of uh, Trinity college london music so I taught youngsters in a, it it was I'm not quite sure what it was called we called it general musicianship, but the woman who had devised it and had thought about it always said music should be taught as a language and it mm. should be taught here." And that's how we pick things up, and then we discover afterwards how you do it. Right, um, it becomes an instinctive process. And I do remember thinking, yes, music, music is a language. Yeah, um, and sometimes you make choices on, and and then work out how um, how it's done.
0: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. So if if you were if you were to pick then of of the composers that you've studied and listened to that shape your musical language, what are some influential composers or time periods or whatever? It's probably really hard to kind of narrow that down, but um, what are some things that have shaped your writing? Uh,
1: yeah, I, I always find this really impossible. And <laughs> I choral music, uh, medieval music uh, or the, the medieval uh, style, Renaissance, Thomas Palace is one um, a composer I'm always going back to because I always think that um, the way in which he writes is not just ex- supremely beautiful it is extraordinary in its structure and I think that's an interesting thing how sometimes the structure of a piece is not apparent um, but, but it's there and, and sometimes that is what gives direction and real integrity to a piece by having such a strong structure um, other influences I mean a lot of them were seen very obvious uh, Bach always I yeah. Bach. I feel I have a very special relationship with because my father played um every year uh one of the things he would do was to play the St Matthew Passion um on Palm and Passion Sunday in the Royal Festival Hall in London and um, it was really quite a, a big deal and and very highly regarded as a, um, an event. And um, so I remember at a very young age, I think I was about five the first time I went, my mother sang in the choir my father played in the orchestra um, and I was babysat by bar while listening to my- <laughs> you know, that's,
0: that's amazing.
1: And, and then also the school that I was at um, was um, a stone's throw from Westminster Abbey. And so we, as a school, uh, the choir were always brought in for the ripieno and um, you know, singing, singing Bach and West in Westminster
0: Abbey. <laughs> wow, that is that is awesome, and and so uh, my, my that's and I, I can that influence to me, talus and medieval, especially medieval, actually. Is really apparent in your writing, in my mind, um, the the performance that Sound of Ages that we just did for National ACDA. Now may we sing It, those? It, you've had you did this really great thing where you incorporate these contempt this contemporary metric kind of dance like feel with these open sonorities within every once in a while these like. 20th century dissonances that are still indicative—they're open dissonances, I guess you can say seconds and sevenths with no third or no fifth—and it it creates this really neo-medieval style. And the first, I, I heard that and I was instantly just like taken in by it. Um, so so my my question is is well and my last comment about it is that I feel like it perfectly encapsulated the feeling of the text. So, so when you're starting a composition and you're going through your process, how, how do you select a text? How does it? What is what speaks to you? How do you make those decisions? Well,
1: yeah, uh, I I think it's important it's really crucial and I will spend a long time before getting down to anything trying to get the the text I feel is going to work best every piece I write is entirely different so there's never any kind of formula thinking right I'll do this or or do that It, it it's it's completely unique and of course each each work I write is very much in consultation with the commissioner because most important thing is Commissioner is happy. And, and um, I, if, if at all possible, want to write something that Commissioner is actually going to be really happy with, right? Sometimes to share that kind of uh, relationship, because I also need to feel that I'm happy writing the words and I, I feel that I can give it um, something of me something original. Um, so so it will be it, it will take time and I I have done I have written works in very different ways and I have used extent uh, text, the Bible, Shakespeare. Um, yeah. the, there are many excellent um, excellent texts to be had there. What I do love doing though is working with a poet and hmm. I've worked with a number of poets in different ways and I find that exciting because one of the things about, as you know, as a composer, is um, it's an isolated business. Um, you have to work on your own, so when you have that opportunity to collaborate and work with another creative person, it's really exciting, and yeah. I think there's, there can be a kind of, um, I don't know how best to describe it, but a sort of leapfrogging of ideas so that mm. you. Experience ideas, and then something comes back and another possibility is there. So I, I think that is all really interesting. And, and then, um, I mean, for, for example, um, let's, let's say, take, take uh, I, I wrote a piece called The Girl from Aleppo. Um, and that was working with the British poet Kevin Crossley Holland. And that, that was a very interesting Work. Uh, that, that, I mean, just finding the words was interesting. The commissioner was the National Children's Choir of Great Britain, mm. and what they wanted was a text that was to do with children in conflict. Now, you know, as a, as a very basic concept, that in itself is is really really hard, isn't it? I mean, right. how how do you, for children, about children in conflict, without really doing something? Has a potential to be really quite harrowing. Right. Um, the, uh, the poet met the, the girl from Aleppo um, in at a, um, a festival in Dubai with a British journalist and author, Christina Lamb. And he found that Christina Lamb had worked with uh in Mustafa, who is. The girl from Aleppo, and together they had written the story of her extraordinary journey from Aleppo to Germany three and a half thousand miles. I'm not quite sure whether it's seven countries they went into or nine countries. A lot, yeah, of wow. And it's Lily's most extraordinary story, and she herself is extraordinary because she has cerebral palsy. Oh, wow! And her sister pushed her, all this, apart from traveling the sea, of course, yeah. all the way to Germany. And so that was where these words came from. Kevin Crossley Holland took her words and he fashioned them in such a way that has created a cantata, which is effectively the journey itself. Yeah. I wonder, could we ask um, Val to uh, play the opening of this piece? Absolutely. What I tried to do in this was um, to try and recreate something of that uh, that part of the world culturally. And um, very fine violinist I know who uh, who has a real sort of feel for Arabic violin playing um, uh, was was part of this commission. So it's for solo violin, piano, and for uh, children's choir in fact it has been done by the bbc singers so it can be done by anybody oh cool and it can be done satb and there is a version for upper voices as well
0: oh fantastic
1: and, um so uh i'm going to ask Val if you be kind enough to play the opening of this piece i like it.
0: I just want to keep listening. Let's just play that for the whole oh. interview. And then... <laughs> that's oh. fantastic.
1: Oh. Oh, but it is interesting what you say about, uh, you know, where does the text come from? Because one of the things I do find interesting is finding perhaps something historical, something scientific, uh, something that perhaps is irrelevant to today and of course the girl from Aleppo is very relevant to today the the children's choir who sang it I think had absolutely no idea of what was going on in the Middle East and of course right. the exciting thing is they were stimulated enough to try and find out much more um, yeah absolutely there are other things I mean, there's, um, uh, well for example Harriet Quimby I don't know if you've come across Harriet Quimby. Um, I have not. She's an American aviatrix. Yeah. um, Great word, that, isn't
0: it? Yeah, I I love it. (laughs) She did something
1: quite extraordinary. She flew across the English Channel in 1912 to Calais. And uh, it was a a journey that had been done by Louis Blériot three years before, 1909. And she did it in... In the other way round, I think he crash landed. Oh, but she didn't. <laughs> nice, <laughs> she did it doesn't it, surprise uh, me at all, though. <laughs> uh, but the, the thing, of course, that's extraordinary about this, and I feel it is worth mentioning her because on the 15th of April, when she did, did this journey, um, nobody it didn't register with anybody, and the reason for that was Titanic went down.
0: Oh, wow
1: went down that of course was so catastrophic it dominated the news for weeks and so this extraordinary woman um was really you know bypassed and and tragically um two or three months later she died when she was giving a demonstration i think over boston harbor and uh, the plane she was in pitched forward and threw her out
0: oh my
1: was weird so a short, glittering career, but remarkable. Yeah. I think you have a lamp with Harriet Quimby on in America. Um,
0: yeah, I'm going to sure go do some more research. I feel like terrible that he, I don't know who that is.
1: <laughs> anyway, the reason I mentioned her was that I was commissioned by a French festival um, for, for a piece that was performed in 2012, which turned out to be the centenary of when Harriet Quimby flew across the channel. Mm. Um, and they asked if there was something I could do that was a, a touch of cordial between between our country between england and and France and um, this seemed uh, a way of of bringing that together that this extraordinary woman had traveled across that way and the, the poems come from um, uh, a, a british poet called Sheila Bryars. Hmm. and um, I mean I wonder whether we could play you uh, the last movement of this it's, yeah some um, three movements are about night and they're about flight so the whole whole piece is called night flight nice but, um, it would be good to hear the last movement which is called hmm. before dawn she landed just before dawn
0: in the oh wow that's amazing. Yeah. With like no no instruments or this technology we have today where pilot planes are landing themselves. It's just like this bicycle with wings almost. So that's amazing.
1: Yeah, indeed. And, and talking of instruments, this piece, which is fundamentally a cappella, it does have a solo cello.
0: You know? Oh, awesome. Perfect. Yeah, let's hear it.
1: It's, it's interesting using the cello in that high register because it's almost like using it's almost like another
0: voice yeah um, that color really fits color. in hmm. so so listening to that this this was not on my list of questions but it's been running through my mind a lot as i've been talking I've, uh, a couple episodes ago i talked to philip lasser American composer and theorist he teaches at Juilliard. He studied with Nadia Boulanger and we talked about um, at its fundamental core there really is nothing like music hasn't really changed since the Renaissance. And he's like, this is really bold, but I'm going to say it. And he said it. And I was like, but but what he was talking about was really the relationship between notes, the relationship between consonants and dissonance at its like fundamental level. And I feel like I don't know what i i haven't i'm not I haven't even looked at these scores that of the two pieces you've played, but the relationship between consonants and dissonance that you have pull immediately like pulls me in. I think that's one of the things that is so captivating about your music is that balance. And it, it's, I think it's unique com, even compared to other composers, uh, contemporary composers. Do, do you, is that something you are consciously like thinking of is like, what is my ratio of dissonance and consonance? Or does the text, does the text dictate that? Or does the line dictate that? Or, or, what are some th- some approaches you use when you when you are uh, putting notes on the page
1: that's a really really interesting question it, it's it's always been this way hasn't it that the difference between consonants and dissonance i think is what gives music its direction and sometimes yeah. if it's too much consonants it it doesn't um have the same pull on the other hand, if there's too much distance, um, it can be quite challenging. But what I always feel is that the juxtaposition between consonants and distance is what actually, I feel can go to the heart of the meaning of the text. Mm. And that's why I feel so I mean, looking back at so many of the um, really fine setters of words, you know, take take something like Benjamin Britten. Um, sometimes it would only just be one dissonance that would actually um, create a, a absolutely poignant moment Yeah. when you understand yeah. the whole thing because of that moment. So I I, I do think that the balance between consonance and dissonance is something I'm subcon I'm, I'm subconsciously aware of. Sure. Um, but also the response to the words as well. I think it's yeah. how you handle
0: those. Yeah, yeah, and and I can see that. Like I said, I can see that in your music. I again, the only reason I bring well the the pieces the the examples that we just shared. I can hear, and maybe my ears are playing tricks on me. But you have these, you know, like this this sonority, and it's almost like a polytonal thing where you have a a different major sonority happening on top. But then there creates this dissonance for a second, but it's still a major triad. So it's this kind of cool false relation, like you would hear in Talos or, or something like that, that's kind of brought back. And it it really does. It pulls you in. And I just, yeah, I think it's brilliant. So. <laughs> you know
1: what it's like listening to false relations um, way, way back then? I mean, there was always that moment you waited for it because sometimes... Yeah you don't keep having it but you have that moment you know it's coming you just think the anticipation of it is um so exciting yeah
0: yeah and and to me the the feeling of wonder at this woman who flew planes and had the worst luck in the world <laughs> that the day she did it was a a, day, a worldwide tragedy but but i i think that that to me, it captures that wonder of night and, and flight. And how do you, this is again, not on my list of questions, but I've always been, there's certain comp and this is not like false flattery or anything. I'm, I'm genuinely impressed and, and think that there are certain composers who, when, when I read a, a poem or a text, like there's a feeling or a vibe that I get, and then it's just like it. There is music in it, and I think that you have like a unique ability amongst composers now to perfectly encapsulate the mood of the text in the music. And is that something that's intuitive, or or how do you how do you do that? Or maybe yeah, I don't even know how you would do that.
1: How <laughs> to answer that one? I I, I suppose like uh, well, as I was saying earlier. I do spend a lot of time looking for the text, yeah. and then I, once I've decided on the text, I do spend quite a bit of time thinking about mm. how I'm going to use it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm always surprised when somebody says, "Oh, yeah, but you can just you know, do it quickly." I, I don't find I can do anything particularly quickly um, <laughs> right. because I really want to. Um, I w- I want to make it as meaningful as I
0: yeah. know how. Um, yeah. yeah, so I and I and you know I think that does answer the qu- I mean to me the the text lives in you for however long and especially if you're not taking a quick amount of time I'm sure subconsciously it's just like in in the, and you probably hear the music with it and start to you want to do it justice and the meaning is the most important thing. And I think that's really powerful for conveying what is so great about choral music in the first place, that the words and the music can tell this story together.
1: I mean, one of the ways that I've been working um, with the text has been with very particularly one British poet, Sean Street, um, and he and I have written a number of pieces together where I have gone to him first of all and said, I, I have some texts, some, some original texts. It could be from somebody's diary or log book or um, something that, that exists somewhere. And I have asked them to contextualize them. So to mm. um, put things into some kind of position. Now, a piece that I wrote last year um, in the first lockdown yeah. um, was a piece that had been commissioned by a British choir, the Glasgow School of Arts Choir. Um, and strangely enough, before any of this happened, before the pandemic happened, Sean and I had worked, we, we discussed something. I, I had found that, um, I think it's, yes, this year, uh, Clara Barton, hmm. American woman, who um, I'm sure everybody knows about in America, not not at, not at home <laughs> here, uh, was a founder of the American Red Cross. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had asked Sean if he could take some of the words from her diaries because she was a nurse at the time of the Civil War. If he he could put those into some kind of context, and um, he uh, he did he did that I I think extremely well. And um, I, I yeah I, I've already said this before, but I, it might be worth mentioning it again. When I was writing this, the um, uh dreadful business of george floyd took place right um and i i incorporated into it uh a spiritual which it's it's delicate and and Mm i i was aware of the the sensitivity of this and i feel it's very important to engage with this rather than just saying it doesn't exist and we're not going to talk about it I feel if anybody wants to talk about it let's do that right Um, this is a spiritual that has its roots, obviously, in the Bible, but also in English Methodism mm. um, from John Newton here. And um, and I am looking looking at the the background of this, find that it then came across to America. And I think around about the time of the beginning of the Civil War was sung as a spiritual then and um, the words i just think are just so beautiful there is a balm in Gilead. yeah and, um i have done a very simple arrangement of this and incorporated it into the piece and of course because the the piece itself which is called angel of the battlefield which is what clara barton was called or mm-hmm. um, that's her story, okay and yeah. um, it it the whole piece is about healing so it, it was a strange time to be writing about something like this uh, while the pandemic was really, you know, raging everywhere. Yeah. And then, yeah, so... But I, I do feel it's important to engage.
2: With yeah.
1: And, and not just to say, you know, we're not going to talk about it. We do right. need to talk about it,
2: yeah.
0: Right, and I think that what you've done... I, I, that, to to me that's really the the root and the the skeleton the foundation of this podcast in general is the fact that sometimes and i in my opinion pretty much all times <laughs> if there's something that we need to engage in and talk about whether it's music and we get into the nitty-gritty technical things or philosophical or religious or scientific or anything that most of the time, if we try to find something new, the best way to do that is by first looking back and and seeing history of what's really happened, what's really going on. What are our roots? What are these foundations? What are the principles? Okay, what do we avoid? What do we take forward? What And then what new ideas can we bring into those old ideas? And so, so I think that that concept of what you just talked about with that piece is you've done exactly that. You know, these conversations, the pandemic, the, 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 the George Floyd thing with the race relations and race tensions, and then this healing from the angel on the battlefield. I think that's so poignant. So, and you looked backwards to history. Um, So do you have a clip of that Val? Can we can we listen to a clip? I'll let you
1: We don't actually because Oh, we don't. It premiered this year, but of course that,
0: Oh, that, that makes sense.
1: That hasn't um no, so that that will be done uh, next year.
0: Okay. Yes. Well, maybe I'll have to have you on again then. Yes. Oh wait. <laughs> um, um, Nice. Yeah,
1: that—that that is um, Kathleen Battle and Jesse Norman, and they're—it's—it's—it's—they're it's, 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 they're on YouTube as well. They—they are. Wow, incredible.
0: that's fantastic. And yeah. I, and uh, I, oh, and I to me again, like like I just said, but I think that spirituals and any music that came before I kind of expand the scope and definition of early music to be all of that. You know, we traditionally think of Western European Renaissance, Baroque medieval, but, but I I think that all of that would be encapsulated in early music. And so I think that that fits really wonderful and wonderfully together. So. Well,
1: and I think what you say about um, history and Drawing from the past, I I feel there is so there is such richness there. It, it, it's always there, and I suppose it's a way of looking back and taking something. There was something that I, I was commissioned to write uh, by St John's College, Cambridge, um, a couple of years ago, and it's uh, it's an anthem, and of course, being St John's College, there is a, a strong association with St John the Baptist. Yeah. and I, was asked if I would write something um that had it had that connection and this was I mean, i i kind of mentioned this piece just in case it's interesting structurally to anybody yeah. listening, because you know we we all think you know how we're we going to write this piece which come from or well, we've got the words so then what
2: yeah uh, we,
1: <laughs> uh, this particular one the, there is um, you all know Guido d'Arezzo. Guido d'Arezzo is the man who devised the solfège, and he devised the notation system.
0: That yeah, understand. the the hand, so, the hand. Yes, so, the hand. <laughs> uh,
1: the hand. Um, So uh, I I took that as one of my ideas for writing this and. of turned it up up a little bit so of course that is scalic and Mm -hmm. also he wrote um a hymn to john the baptist which each line begins with ut re mi fa but you have ut quaint laxis so you have a latin line um and what i thought was if i use the text and use it as if it's a scale perhaps if I use a quasi-octatonic scale hmm. um, in, in, instead of the seven diatonic notes, the eight, sort of Stravinsky-esque, yeah. um, it will tip it slightly, it'll, it'll tilt the sound of it. So that was one thinking behind it. And the other one was I used another text by Thomas Merton, um, hmm. uh, American Hermit and um he wrote uh, a prayer to st john the baptist and in his poem there is a lot of imagery to do with the river mm. and San very simple idea but the organ part that underlies the whole piece um, is and my, my idea was that it sounded like a river running yeah. through it you get this uh. line it's halfway through there's a complete break and then it's back again to the flowing river And and I think one has got this one, so um, this is A Prayer to St John the Baptist, sung by John's College, Cambridge.
0: Mm. That is very Stravinskian but 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 not at this I think it's great. That's awesome. It's yeah, it's very oh man, it's so engaging. So engaging. And I really like the the textures of, you know, the opening organ being quicker metrical figures with then longer lines in the sustained notes in the singers, it creates cool color. so well, that's great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's great. So um, that that uh, that's um, a lot to to use. That gives me plenty to use. I think my my next class is gonna come in in a little bit. This worked perfectly. So, but uh, yeah. it, it um I really appreciate you both of you for for coming on the podcast and sharing your thoughts and. It's just been such a pleasure. So.
1: pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: I don't know about you guys, but every time I do one of these episodes, I just get super pumped and I cannot wait to go and listen and program and sing and conduct some talus and some McDowell. It's so fantastic. Go listen to their stuff. It's amazing. Experience the divine that touches the human emotion. It's oh, It's so great. Be sure to like and subscribe. Follow us on social media platforms follow Sound of Ages, stay tuned to their website to uh, stay informed about upcoming projects and things. Uh, Give us a five-star rating. Those things really help. Share this with your friends, and we'll catch you next time on Early Music Monday.